Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 16. While you're turning, I'll make a couple of comments. Uh, first, if this tie does not match this shirt, I know and I agree, but this was the best of the three options that Evelyn brought to me this morning when she told me she wanted me to wear a tie. Um, the first one was from your wedding, James and Arna, and I told her it's a little bright for, yes, Arna would have liked it. Um, I had already picked out the shirt at the time, and so it definitely wasn't going to work. She was very happy to pick out a tie for Dad. Hopefully it will not be a distraction uh, to anyone but me, anyway. I don't like having ties on. Um, second... Uh, Josh, I was uh, moved by the uh, scripture that you read uh, this morning, um, and it um, it really hit home for me, and I didn't expect it uh, to, to hit home that way. I didn't know what you were going to read, so thank you for, for reading that. Um, third, um, as we finish out 1 Corinthians this morning, we're going to go through Paul's closing comments, and then we're going to take a, a look back through uh, the book in kind of an outline portion. And I don't know if it will be high street level um, Bible study, you know, uh, quality, but we will try to. We will try. I noticed that some of that announcement about the high, you know, on high street on Thursdays they're going through all the books of the Bible, right, Steve? One a week. I noticed, did you, pay, did you catch the level of detail? A three-ring binder. Don't show up with just a legal pad or, you know, you, get, you better have a three-ring binder ready to go if you're showing up. That is serious business, right? Right? That's like when you take a college course and you get the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the what, is it, what is it called? The syllabus. That's right. Of what you better have the first day of class. Been a while since I've taken a college course, so I'm not prepared for high street. So we're gonna we're gonna do our own uh, version of that as we close out First Corinthians to remind us a little bit about the issues that we've covered in this book. Let's start though by reading in verse five, which is where we left off last time. Paul is concluding a, what is a very difficult letter, and he writes a little bit about his personal plans here. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. For I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes... See that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is, the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Um, I want to go through some of those 
closing comments uh, piece by piece, albeit a little bit bigger sections than we did last week. Let's go through just verse 5 uh, through 7. It, uh, let me just read those three again to you, those verses 5 through 7. He says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. If you'd like more context on this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, on the other side of this trip, Paul is going to give them a little bit of a, a summary of his journeys and his travels and where he stayed on this trip. And it, it would be good to touch, touch base on it, but it should remind us that Paul is writing this letter, but he is writing this letter from a working environment. I mean, he's, uh, he's about the Lord's business actively here. This is a letter that he sat down and, and he penned with someone. We don't, don't know who. Luke, Timothy, someone helped pen it. We know someone else is writing and, and writing out his words here. And because at the end he says, this salutation with my own hand. He signs it at the end to make sure oh, it's coming from me. Um, but he's at work and you can read more about that elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, but in verse 6, listen to the uncertainty of his job. He really picked this up in verse 6 and 7. It may be that I will remain. Or even spend the... He doesn't know... He doesn't know when he'll see them again. And if he visits, he doesn't know how long he'll stay. He says, it may be that I'll remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey. And then again, the uncertainty. Wherever I go. He doesn't have, a, <laughs> he doesn't have the next year and a half lined out. You get more of it in verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope... To stay a while with you, can hear the uncertainty again, if the Lord permits. And again, the uncertainty. I call that to your attention because Paul as an apostle is really in a unique role. And uh, we, we might refer to, you know, Paul more as a missionary in this stage. And these are missionary journeys. But he's got a specific commission as an apostle of, of Jesus. He is going around and he saw this as a unique, you know, unique commission to him. And there were people who are coming alongside him helping him with this, but he is going around to these Gentile people throughout Asia and he is trying to plant churches and that's coming at great sacrifice to Paul. And, you know, we, we read a really hard letter like this and I'm sure there are things in this letter that hit you uncomfortably. Um, probably things that I didn't even intend to hit you uncomfortably that hit you uncomfortably, but understand where it is coming from. Paul is, um, Paul is, is sacrificing a lot for this. Um, he doesn't know where he's going next. He has plans and they get changed. And um, he's serving them as best he can with little control over his actual schedule in life. He doesn't know what comes next. Now, you get a sense of this even more in the following verses. It says in verse 8, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me. So you see, he's staying in Ephesus, which is the place where the letter to the Ephesians is, is written. Um, and he sees there, it sounds unexpectedly like there's, an there's a great opportunity here. And we don't have to guess as to what he means. It's not a business venture. It's not a, you know, a, a personal <laughs> you know, thing. A great opportunity is a great opportunity for the gospel, for the church. And it... And it, it Sounds unexpected. A door has opened. But notice the next phrase, and there are many adversaries. Now we know from having read chapter 15 over the last several weeks that in Ephesus he talks of his time there as fighting with animals and wild beasts. In other words, he sees his time in Ephesus with the same kind of physical and worldly threat as it would be to stand in, in an arena with a lion. Like that's what he's talking about here. Um, but what does he do? Does he, is he going to run away from Ephesus? There's adversaries there, which means there's something to compete over. There's something to fight for. Is he just going to surrender Ephesus to enemies of Christ? No, he's not. He's going to remain here because though he sees the adversaries, he sees a door that's opened, an opportunity and he's going to take it. He's going to put his, he's going to keep his life, is probably the right way. He's going to keep his life in harm's way. He's not going to withdraw from harm's way. Um, in verse 12, 
You'll notice that it says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. Um, And I wonder if Apollos... We could come up with several reasons why Apollos says no. Because he says no. You know, Paul writes, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. He will come when he has a convenient time. We can surmise, I think, and it could have been something else, but two reasonable causes why Apollos might refuse Paul's instruction or request to go to Corinth. One, as we'll see when we do this summary of the book in a minute, Apollos had been to Corinth with Paul and the people had split up into factions and now Paul has written this letter to the Corinthians in part to deal with the fact that some people are saying I am of Paul and others I am of Apollos. It could be that Apollos is unwilling because he is not comfortable with what they have done with him as a leader at that church. That could be it. But it could also be this thing at Ephesus. That Apollos is simply not going to run away from this either and leave Paul there while Paul sends the other brothers away. Paul is sending brothers away from Ephesus. And there's this tension in this that causes me to ask the question, which I don't have the answer to, but how much of this is Paul... uh, sending people on necessary mission trips and how much of it is Paul seizing an opportunity for the gospel's sake while kind of evacuating some of the other ministers of the gospel from the area in Ephesus. I don't know what is what in his motives there. He doesn't say, but Apollos isn't leaving. He won't go. So there, there was real tension here. There was real danger. It says in verse 10, if Timothy comes, now we think that Timothy might have delivered this letter, but Timothy would have delivered more communication than just this letter, so it's possible that Timothy himself did not deliver this letter, but simply upon reaching the region had this letter delivered from Paul to the church. Paul writing this says, if Timothy comes, which I think is if the letter has come by his hand, See that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord also as I do. Um, it wouldn't, if, if you know and you remember the things in this letter, um, it wouldn't have been comfortable sitting in church when this was read for the first time. It would have been tough. And you can imagine perhaps Timothy from a long journey sitting among the congregation, perhaps in the front row, perhaps, I mean, he's the messenger from Paul, and having this letter read and wondering, where am I eating lunch this afternoon? <laughs> Who's putting me up for the night? <laughs> I hope Stephanus is really paying attention when he gets complimented here at the end. I mean, you get the sense that Paul is not oblivious to the fact that when you write, when you deal with hard things, you don't know for sure how even people who claim to love you and love the Lord are going to take them. That's not a challenge unique to Paul. Um, when you teach and, and say challenging things here, um, you don't know who's going to receive it and in what way it's going to be received. Paul didn't know. We catch a glimpse of his anxiety over how this letter was going to be received in the next letter. He makes specific reference in 2 Corinthians of how much stress he was under waiting for the news to to hear how they had received this letter. Um, He says, don't mistreat poor Timothy for, for this. It says, therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So he's... He's anxious for the return and the report of how all these things went, I think. Then in verse 13, we get a kind of a final exhortation. Now, now listen to this. The word watch comes first. And it's fine as far as English translations go. It's the idea of be careful. Be careful. Um, I think there was a... I saw a clip on the internet. It's been years ago. It's just come to my mind now. Um, of uh, 
an American Idol uh, contestant, you know, the singing show back when they did, I don't even know if they still do the singing show, but there was a clip on the internet of this, this country boy uh, from, uh, I don't know, down south somewhere, and he, he auditioned, and it didn't go well, and they told him he wasn't going to make it, and on his way out the door, he said, okay, be careful, and he walked out the door, and it caused a big uproar, it was like on the front page of the news, he was like, listen to this country boy threaten these judges on the way out of, of rejecting him, so, I mean, but, but, but if you go south, you hear people say, yep, you be careful, you be careful, that was just like, it's, it's a common, it's a, it's a greeting, it's a salutation, it's a, it's the, it's aloha, it's, it's not a threat, but the, the bunch of these, you know, East Coast, West Coast folks just heard, oh, this scary looking country guy's threatening me, you know, but why is it a greeting or a salutation? It's just a, it, it's, hey, you know, be cautious, you know, take care of yourself, be watchful, be careful. He says, be careful, stand fast in the faith. Literally, don't move. Be immovable in the faith. Um, there's part of this warning that doesn't make sense unless you can read it with the rest of the letter, which is why the summary is helpful, I think, when you close it out. Because in light of all these things that are going on, be careful, be cautious. People only say that when they genuinely think you have something to lose. Right? I mean... When, when a parent shouts at a kid, hey, be careful, something is coming to mind. There's, there's some risk. There's some danger. There's, you know, I do that stuff all the time with my kids. You know, Evelyn came to me this morning and told me that she was tall enough to get her own cup out of the cupboard now. And I thought, oh, <laughs> she's excited. I'm thinking, be careful. <laughs> I'm thinking, Which cup are you? Let's get the plastic ones. Let's be careful. Because that's, what, that's how we use that phrase. Paul is saying, you've got something to lose here. There is legitimate risk. There's danger. Now, from Paul's writing, do we think he means their physical lives? Is he telling them, hey, be careful because you might be killed? I don't think so. That's not the context of the letter. The warning is about their faith. The warning is about their, their core commitment to Christ. And he's telling them, be careful. The things that I've written about in this book, the report that I've heard, um, leads me to believe that there is legitimate danger here and perhaps some are already in the throes of it. You need to be immovable in the faith. And then, be brave is not the best translation, but it is <laughs> it's literally, be like a man. You don't have to like that, ladies, I guess, but that's what it says. Be like a man. Um... Um, the, the context of it is, you know, gird yourself up like a man would for, for conflict. So be, be careful, be immovable in the faith, be like a man in the face of conflict. And finally, be strong, which goes along with that, be like a man. Um, and then, so you get that kind of manly call, and then look at verse 14. This is the flip side of what a Christ-like man is. Let all things you do be done with love. Um, so when he says, be like a man, he's conjuring up images of Rambo um, <laughs> with all the strength of Jesus. In other words, um, face down difficulty and conflict and strife like a man. Be brave, be strong. And don't do anything without love. You know, your action is born out of that. You know, your action is not born out of anger or wrath or frustration or depression or, you know, your action is born out of love. Be careful. Don't move in your faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Don't do anything without love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia. Uh, some people, Achaia, the pronunciation is irrelevant, but uh, at least for us, I'm not going there right now. Um, but Stephanus, uh, the, their house, this is the first people saved. These are people baptized by Paul when he first came to Corinth. And it says um, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That does not mean that they were, they were the pastors. That's not what it means. 
When we talk about being, <laughs> being devoted to be ministers of the saints, you know, that's not a uniquely pastoral call. These are the first saved in Corinth and they have devoted themselves to the service of, of believers and the, the spread of the faith and to, to uh, the work of the ministry. They were devoted to this. Now maybe they had some sort of pastoral role, but that's not in here. The idea here is they had a special originating part in this and they've devoted themselves to the work. They partnered with Paul and been faithful here irregardless of their spiritual gifting to be pastoral or whatever. They are devoted to the ministry of Christians and he says that you submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. These were fellow partners. They were to be listened to. You, you see in verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus for what was lacking on your part they supplied. Now I don't think when he says what was lacking on your part, he's talking about money. I don't think that's what it means. It could mean money. I don't think that's what it means. Remember, Paul has been written to. A letter has been delivered to him about the church in Corinth. And the letter was disturbing. And what I believe he means here is that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, whether they're the ones who brought the letter or they just showed up to visit with Paul with the concerns, they filled in the blanks of the anxiety filled in the letter. <laughs> they had written... And I think this means what they had written was lacking in full explanation and he was very grateful that it was delivered by three faithful people who explained from a godly perspective what was going on. And that's why I think he says they refreshed my spirit and yours because I imagine hearing some of the things that are in this book from a single letter. I mean, if you have to get really distressing news, how do you want to get it? You want to get an email or do you want to sit down and talk to somebody about it? I mean, seriously, that sounds very practical, but Paul got a letter and it was disturbing and he was grateful, I think, to have three people there who were trustworthy to help talk through and work through what exactly was going on. And it was good for Paul and it was good for the Corinthians. Only the Lord knows what his reaction would have been if he only had what was on the, the paper to go by. And so he's given them credit and he says, acknowledge such men. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I have made a bit of a thing over, of this over the, the near 10 years now that I've been preaching. And some of you smile the moment that we read these verses anymore about the greeting one another with the holy kiss. And I have not instituted the practice, so uh, only on rare occasions uh, and with, with people who I'm sure I'm not going to get punched for, for greeting them with a, a holy kiss. I'm very cautious, I would say, in general. But my point is, this holy kiss comes up multiple times throughout the New Testament because while a kiss on the cheek or the forehead or even the lips is a Eastern form of greeting. It is still an intimate form of greeting in the Eastern world. You did not just greet strangers with kisses of affection. The reason why this became so scandalous in the early church, and there is extra biblical writing of those who were criticizing the early church about these kinds of greetings is because you really only kissed family or friends who were as close as family. And then, you know, I don't know how you do it, but sometimes at the holidays, I'll give my dad, my dad a hug and I'll kiss him on the cheek. And, uh, you know, I don't kiss my dad on the cheek every time I see him, but sometimes I'll give my, my mom or my dad a kiss on the cheek. Now, my mom will kiss me every single chance that she gets. And, uh, but it's a family thing. And what was scandalous about it in the Christian church was you had people who were actually slaves. Someone's property. Sitting down beside someone who was wealthy and rich in the same worship service. And the idea that two people from those different classes would embrace one another with any sort of affection was culturally, socially scandalous. The idea that a Jew and a Gentile, 
that a Jewish man who is a follower of Jesus Christ and a Gentile pagan who has come out of idol worship would gather together on the first day of the week and sing to the same God and sit side by side and embrace each other and kiss each other on the forehead or the cheek on their way back out into the world? That idea was scandalous. It was upheaving in the culture around people. This is the kind of stuff that drove the Gentile world and the Jewish world crazy about the Christian church. And Paul says, greet one another with the holy kiss because he's not messing around when he talks about the local church as brothers and sisters in Christ. That brothers and sisters is not a euphemism for friends. I mean, it's not. It's, it's more than that. We have a heavenly father who has children whom he's adopted into his family and maybe that doesn't seem real to you always, but I promise you it is real to your Heavenly Father who has paid the price of, of blood to bring you into this family and who is going to deliver promises to you that you will embrace as an inheritance. Children inherit. It's real to your Heavenly Father and Paul expects it to be real to brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are all sorts of reasons why people struggle with this idea of, of really embracing the, I'm not talking about kissing, but the idea of brothers and sisters in Christ. There are all sorts of reasons why they struggle with that. Um, sometimes it's because they have so many family members that are already a part of their life. Those family members are like the real family and then there's the church family. And other people, they don't have anybody in their life who's ever really like family except for maybe those in their immediate house and they struggle to embrace anyone else as they would someone in their own house. I understand both conflicts. I understand both conflicts. But just know, this is what we are in the eyes of the Lord. Family. And this is how we're supposed to think and love and care for each other as family. And I promise you, if you embrace that, you will be blessed by it. And you'll be a blessing to others. But if you allow what you bring to the table, be whatever your family circumstance is, whatever your, your own emotions are, whatever, if you allow what you bring to the table to keep you from embracing a family relationship with the people of God, then you'll not be blessed by it, nor will you be the blessing that you should be to other people. So Paul, in his letters, is routinely saying things like this. <laughs> um, verse 21, this salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. So right there is a, <laughs> is a disqualifying statement. In other words, if you have, we've talked about bad beliefs about the resurrection, and we've talked about bad things in the family, and we've talked about sin, and we've talked about division. We've talked about all that, but let me just be real clear at the end of the letter. John does this kind of stuff too. If there's anyone among you who does not love Jesus, they're out. <laughs> I didn't write two chapters about it, but I'm telling you in, the, in a verse, in closing... There's a real basic litmus test. It's not the only test. It's not the only thing to be concerned about. But just so it's clear. If anyone doesn't love Jesus, they're out. <laughs> and that's what this let them be a cursed thing is. It doesn't mean that Paul is wishing for malice against them. It, it is a statement of fact. They are an enemy of God. They stand under God's judgment you should not embrace them in the church as if their beliefs were valid. They're not valid. <laughs> Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he extends grace from God in Christ who commissioned him in the first place. Paul has the authority to do that. I think you have the authority to do that. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who sent me, who commissioned me, who put me into service, 
who I represent. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then he adds his own note, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's the end of the letter. Now I want to, as I said, outline this briefly for you and then land land the plane here. Um, we begin in chapters 1 through 3, and, and I think you should kind of flip through these as you go, because I want you to see the totality of what's covered here. We've gone through a lot. But if you just glance at maybe the subtitles of chapters 1 through 3, we begin with the reality that this church in Corinth, it had some big problems. They had factioned themselves off into various ministries and ministers and messages. And chapters 1 through 3 are dealing with these factions. Um, with the fact that they've got people following people. And I wish I could tell you that this was no burden for the church today, but boy is it a burden for the church today. They had, think about the people that they're following. Okay, this church in Corinth. They're following Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they're following people who had shown up and been there, people who they had heard about. You know, that's, those, those are the names that show up on the list, right? Um, but they didn't have the internet or Christian publishing or, you know, a billion parachurch ministries. They didn't have any of that stuff. So today, um, the, the idea that people will find for themselves from somewhere out in the, in the mass celebrity, the mass publishing crowd, a particular leader or ministry to follow and then so identify themselves with that ministry that it even begins to take priority over the relationship to Jesus and the local church, that is not unique at all. That stuff happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's happening right now. <laughs> Right now. I'm, I'm dealing with it right now. The idea that, that you know, someone gets so enamored with what someone else is doing outside the church and now all of a sudden they become the authority and they become the leader. That it happens all the time. And you do well to refresh yourself with those first three chapters. That, and what does he say in these first three chapters? He says, look, this is not about people. It's not about so-and-so's ministry or so-and-so's approach or so-and-so's style. It's not about any of that. And the fact that you've made it about that makes me want to say, I don't want anything to do with any of you. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty bold thing to say. But, you know, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Stephanas and Aga You know, I'm glad because it is so off-putting. He solved that idea of kind of celebrity pastor, celebrity culture, you know, um, uh, 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 ex church expert, he saw that as anathema to what the church was supposed to be doing. What was supposed to be happening is one person plants and another person waters and another person reaps the harvest, but everybody's simply working together for Jesus and no people should get any special credit or authority. Paul shouldn't get any, Paul is not the church planting expert. <laughs> That's the, he, he hated that nonsense. And, 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 and Apollos who comes along and watered, he's not the master, teacher, discipler of everyone. And these guys who are there to, to reap the benefits of what's growing, they're, they're not the expert local church leaders. He hated that stuff. He said, look, you're seeing this all wrong. And what message in chapters 2 and 3 does he continue to call them back to? The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. He is saying, if we simply teach faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ministry of all of the things that are supposed to be happening in the local church will happen because the Spirit of God will work in the people who have embraced the gospel. The ministry will happen. So the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's what he's saying. Paul, then in chapter 4, positions himself as the fool, the simpleton who they've made him out to be. At one point he says, just one voice in 10,000. <laughs> and you see what this kind of this kind of sectarianism in a church can do. It can take even the apostle Paul <laughs> and make him seem inconsequential or unhelpful in the eyes of people. The Apostle Paul. What's it going to do to me? <laughs> I'm going to be irrelevant real fast. And so will anyone else. 
Because it's not supposed to be about your teacher or your leader or your... It's not supposed to be about those things. God has established a way for the local church to operate. It's supposed to have pastors, elders, overseers, all any of the different words. And they're supposed to be teaching the Word of God and equipping saints for ministry. And saints are supposed to be performing that ministry and working hard in that ministry. And it's by that method that the local church is supposed to have all that they need through the gifting of the Holy Spirit in the people. That's the model all the way through Ephesians 4, all the way through the New Testament. That's the model. It's not about Apollos the expert or Paul the expert or, any, or Peter the great, the great disciple of Christ. It's not about that stuff. And, and their making it about that had reduced Paul in their minds, chapter 4, to like one, uh, uh, one voice in 10,000. Then he pivots and he starts talking about some of the problems in chapter 5, it's dealing with sexual immorality. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? There's not. There's sexual immorality going on in the church. They didn't want to deal with it. Why? Well, somebody's friend, somebody's family member, somebody's buddy, somebody who's been here from the beginning. I don't know. All the different reasons built into one. And he's got a right to say what we know is true. Listen. The church has to deal with sin. You have to deal with this. It's not okay. You can't ignore it. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is. He goes so far as to say, <laughs> when you meet together, it's as if I am in your presence. Do this next time. I mean, I, I don't know if they did it the day the first letter was read or not. But it doesn't give them an option. In chapter 6, it's suing one another. <laughs> Problem resolution. Conflict resolution. Um, rather than going to a brother who's defrauded you or done something wrong and reconciling it, rather than appealing to your, your pastor because you both are in the same church, you both have the same pastor and saying, hey, help us resolve this. We don't want conflict. People are going to law against each other in Corinth. You're not supposed to be doing that. And we, we talked about this. Say, wait, does that mean I'm never allowed to, to, you know, file any kind of a lawsuit? That's not what he says. He says, two Christians in the same church should not be suing each other because it makes the body of Christ look ridiculous to the rest of the world. They can't even work out their own problems. You know? Pretty basic stuff, but it's clarity. Chapter 7. Marriage. Chapters 8 through 10. This whole Christian freedom and food sacrifice to idols and making laws for other people that you ought not make and claiming liberties as if they have no consequence and don't affect anybody who's sensitive around us. And you can almost hear the tone of you have to live together, guys. You have to work together. The person who is super sensitive can't just make up rules for everybody else. And the person who knows the right thing can't simply abuse their freedom to the detriment of the conscience of the people around them who are sensitive. You need to love each other. This is the part of the scriptures where Paul says, you know, I would rather go without meat for the rest of my life. I'd rather just not eat meat, period, than hurt and offend a sensitive brother coming out one of these immoral, idolatrous, adulterous, pagan temples who's going to think that I'm throwing it back in his face because I want to eat a steak for lunch. I mean, you have to live together. That's what he's saying. And love the Lord. And love should dictate what that relationship looks like. In chapter 10 comes the idea of dying to yourself. And giving up your rights. It's great to have rights. It's greater to lay them down. Head coverings is chapter 11. John was gracious and let me get through that one. Thank you, John. Didn't beat me up too bad on it. 
We've had good discussions about head coverings in the past. The Lord's Supper is in chapter 11. They had made a mess of the Lord's Supper, if you remember. The rich people were eating before the poor people got there. There wasn't anything left. It was the turn of this big feast. It was a, it was a bad, it was a bad deal. He sets that straight. 12 through 14 is spiritual gifts. What they are, what they're for, how they're supposed to operate. Chapter 13 is on love. The greatest of these. 14 is order in the church. You know, uh, we have these little orders of service. They're not carved in stone. If you have ideas or want to talk about them, Nothing here is written in, you know, permanent ink. There are things that we need to spend more time on, include more of, do things differently. I, you know, let's sit down and work through it. But the service should have order. It's not just, let's show up on Sunday and we'll figure it out when we get there. It should have order. You think I preach for a long time. Imagine if I was just speaker one and then we got speaker two, three, and four coming right behind me with their own words from the Lord. And then we got a few people that want to sing. There's people want to put on shows and you're like, Ugh. wasn't orderly. He said, put it in order. And this is where he says, one or two at most should, say, you know, should stand up and speak, which gives you an idea of what was actually going on, right? So... Maybe we just have one of those like uh, one of those talking sticks, right? And whoever's got the stick, they can they can get up here next and talk. What do you think about? I got the stick now. You guys be quiet. It's my turn. You know, it's kind of it's, it felt like that, right? As soon as hey, the floor is mine, and he says no. <laughs> there needs to be order. Let everything be done decently and in order. And then chapter fifteen, which we've recently covered, is probably. And I know it doesn't seem like this in light of some of these other things, especially some of the a guy sleeping with his father's wife. That's pretty heinous stuff there. But you get to chapter 15, you realize we're talking about people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There's not much more alarming about that. And I think it spurs the comment in the end here in chapter 16 where he says, look, if anybody doesn't love Jesus, they're out. There are core doctrines of the Christian faith that are not up for discussion. And Paul is definitively putting the resurrection of Jesus in that category in chapter 15. This is not up for debate. And then these updates and closing thoughts. Um, so we put this away. I want to invite you to think through our church with me. I want to invite you to think through it with me. Because I think that's the right thing to do. It's what I've, I've been doing for a year now. And as I think through our church in light of this summary, um, I'm grateful um, for all of you and for your love of God's Word and your faithfulness to God's Word. I'm grateful for it. You not only tolerate the Word of God being taught at length, but you support it actively. I'm grateful for that. I don't see a lot of people consumed with outside celebrity parachurch leaders it exists, it causes a little concern for me, but I don't see, I don't see people enamored with, uh, with celebrity, which I'm grateful for. I don't know of any sin that's not being dealt with in the church. Um, if there's something that needs to be dealt with, you need to deal with it the right way, which is first go to your brother or sister and then if it won't be resolved take a trustworthy person with you and go with them to talk to the person again if it's not resolved then you need to talk to the pastors I'm not talking when I say resolved I mean sin needs to be repented of 
I don't mean somebody's got to get on their hands and knees and grovel before you, but there need, if there's sin that's not being dealt with, it just needs to be acknowledged and repented of. I don't see that not being dealt with here. I can say confidently, I'm not, I'm not neglecting dealing with it. I don't think you are either. And I am grateful for that foundation. I'm glad this is not a place where people can come and sit under the illusion that they're going to be here and then do whatever the heck they want to do without, without any accountability. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that we're pretty solid on our doctrine, on what we believe about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, I don't see people callously offending other people with their Christian freedoms. We could do that. But I don't see the person who enjoys having a beer showing up to the church picnic with a six-pack and risk offending <laughs> a bunch of guys who, who are like, hey, I'm not comfortable with the... You know, um, I, I appreciate that. I respect that. I would think that for us, aside from the encouragement of God's Word on these things, that maybe a little bit on the sectarianism side, I would just, as we close this book, I would caution you. Um, the world is replete with people who have raised their hands triumphantly in ministry victory because they've started a ministry or they've written a book and it's a New York Times bestseller or 5,000 people showed up or 30,000 people came to their conference. You never see, you never see the Apostle Paul raise his hands triumphantly in the scripture. You never see it. When he talks about triumph, he talks about at the end of his life. When Second Timothy, you know, I have now finished the race. My life is being poured out as a drink offering before the Lord. Henceforth for me is laid up the crown of glory. Um, don't be deceived by earthly success. So I would caution you there. And I would encourage you on the account of 1 Corinthians 13 to embrace a biblical view of what Christian love is. I don't think you can read that chapter too frequently as long as you are reading it with an eye of evaluation in your own heart toward other people in the body of Christ. If you read 1 Corinthians 13 once a week for the rest of your life and you asked yourself, am I loving Christian people this way? You would do yourself a service. It, Paul he spares no time at all in saying the greatest of these spiritual gifts, these blessings from God the Father that are given to his people, the greatest of them is love. And not earthly love, but love that looks like this. And if you don't have this, nothing else that you're doing matters. Right? That's the whole 1 Corinthians 13 vibe. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, though I give my body to be burned, though I give all my possessions to feed the poor, but have not love, I am nothing. And you get a sense of that as we close 16 at the very end, right? You know, it's the be careful, be immovable in the faith, act like a man, be strong, don't do anything without love. Because it's all worthless if you are. It doesn't mean anything. So that's where I think where I would land for our church. Now maybe you would land somewhere else. I uh, would like to have those dialogues with you. I hope that there's no one in the church that feels like they, they can't talk with me about their life and their faith and, and the church and where they, where they stand because I'll get angry or I won't listen uh, that's not the case. I, I think you'll find relative humility. When I read the scriptures, I, I'm challenged personally that I'm not the man I should be. And I'm challenged as a body of believers 
you know, that, that we're not yet the people that we should be. And I don't think we're going to raise our hands triumphantly here on this earth, but we're supposed to press on towards the mark nevertheless. And I want to have those dialogues with you, and I think you should have them. I think you should. So with that challenge, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and a bit of a confessional time as your son here in front of everyone. I, I can't believe how patient you are with us. But then when I read a letter like the one we've just finished teaching through, I'm reminded of how patient you've been with the church throughout the ages. And, um, and I thank you for your patience because if you simply merited out the judgment that we deserve for the way that we behave sometimes or for our negligence of important things, if you were simply done with us because for a time we were done with you, then none of us would have any hope of eternal security. But you have promised, you have committed yourself to love us as our Father, and you have commissioned us, you've given us the job of loving each other in a very specific way, and I thank you for how your word speaks to that. I hope that we all have the love of Jesus so that none of us are accursed. Work in our lives for as long as we live so that when we cross the finish line and we're buried, cremated, drowned in the sea, wherever we die, when we cross the finish line, the actual finish line of ministry, I will stand before you and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your Master. Father, help us to press on till then and to endure whatever we have to endure until we get to that point. To not let setbacks, difficulties, relationships, hurt feelings, sin and forgiveness, to not let these things derail our ministry. But to be faithful, to be cautious, to be brave, to be strong and to act with love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.